Hello, I'm Sue Nelson, and welcome to the Planet Earth podcast, which this time is from the RAL Space Test Chamber in Oxfordshire. And in front of me is what looks like a cylinder covered in baker foil, but I'm assured that it's far more state-of-the-art than that, and you can find out what exactly it is in just a moment. Also in this podcast, we'll be looking at why it may be better to cut your hedgerows less frequently than you might have thought. If farmers cut their hedgerows every three years, that can have a substantial benefit for wildlife. It results in more berries being produced for overwintering birds and small mammals to feed on, and also in more flowers being produced in the spring for pollinating insects. More on that story later. Now, the RAL space test chamber. RAL stands for Rutherford Appleton Laboratory. And with me is Dr. Hugh Mortimer, who's a space scientist here with a specific interest in the environment. And before we find out exactly what that connection is, describe to me what this, I rather rudely call this giant cylinder covered in baker foil, actually is. But let's face it, that's exactly what it looks like, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Essentially, what we're doing is we're standing outside uh, the test chamber, which is where we calibrate and test space instrumentation, both satellites and smaller instruments, before they go into space. So what we have is a facility that allows us to take the pressures and temperatures down to such an extent that we're representing, recreating the conditions in space. And one of the things you alluded to is our instruments being covered in baco foil. It's not too far from the truth. Essentially what we have are our instruments protected by the thermal radiation from the sun, from the earth and from the moon from heating our spacecraft up or our spacecraft cooling down to temperatures that would mean that our mechanics, our electronics would no longer operate. Now you're specifically interested in sea surface temperature. Why is it so important to measure this accurately? The Rutherford Appleton Laboratories has been sending instruments into space to measure sea surface temperature since the uh, early 80s. That gives us a continual data record of temperatures which we can then use to identify trends within the climate and we can use to then look at different aspects such as climate change and how the sea is warming up. Now you're involved in an instrument that's going to fly on board a, a satellite for this. Where about do we get to look at that? The instrument that we are calibrating is a large European Space Agency project. This is the fourth in the generation of the same kind of instruments that we've flown before and within the next few years it will be launched and operational and it will be providing data for the scientific community both for operational purposes so for the Met Office for providing weather forecasts because essentially the temperature of the ocean really drives the weather that we get in Europe. The other thing that we're trying to do is then use this data to look at climate change and climate records. So the instruments that we're developing and building here, we're then calibrating before it gets launched into space, and therefore we know precisely how accurate that instrument is at at measuring sea surface. Well, it's great to be able to get effectively a sneak preview of of something that you're you're working on, a prototype effectively. It's in a different laboratory just behind this test chamber. Wander past the side of the test chamber there with rather a a marvellous view. Past another clean room with people wearing those rather unflattering hairnets. And round a corner and into Hugh's laboratory. 
So we've just walked into the molecular spectroscopy facility and within this facility we have the ways and means of calibrating ground-based instrumentation. It always looks far more low-tech than it does, I think, a real science lab. It's sort of Wallace and Gromit nuts and bolts style <laughs> thing. Don't look horrified, but that's how it always appears to me. Well, where we, where we are is a very well-used laboratory. We use spectrometers primarily to look at the differences in, in how light interacts with materials around us, both solid, liquids and gases. And what we're doing is then we use that information to give us essentially data on how much gas is present or the qualities of that particular gas. So here in this laboratory we also have something called the sister instrument which is the scanning infrared sea surface temperature radiometer. And sister actually goes on board a, a ship doesn't yeah. it? The Queen Mary 2. We're very privileged to have this collaboration with Cunard where we are able to launch or essentially put our instruments on the side of these really prestigious beautiful ships where we can measure sea surface temperature in exactly the same way that the satellites measure sea surface temperature and from which we can then take the instrument that we know very well that we've calibrated at the labs and then cross compare the sea surface temperatures as the satellite passes overhead of the Queen Mary 2. And how accurate have they been? Our instruments can measure to an accuracy of about 10 millikelvin which is pretty accurate. So that's sort of 0.001. 0.001 Kelvin. Why put it on a cruise ship <laughs> effectively? Why not a research vessel? Well, one of the benefits is that we get to use a very stable platform. We also can operate it in a very clean condition and we are subject to temperatures because the Queen Mary 2 goes around the world, which are very, very cold, so we're looking at very northern uh, latitudes, to very, very warm, so looking at the tropics as it travels around the Caribbean for its very rich passengers. Currently, Sister is on board the Queen Mary 2, so she, she's not actually here in, in the lab- laboratory. She's on, I think she was in Cape Town earlier today, cruising around, um, so she's now on a world voyage. We won't see her again until uh, late April. I'm assuming there are no scientists on, on board that cruise ship. There aren't, no. We've made, unfortunately, the instrument fully autonomous. <laughs> uh, so it's very rare that we get to go on board. Generally, it's when it's in, in uh, birth at Southampton. Well, that was a bit of a design blunder on, on your part. So where do we go to see your instrument? OK, we can go through to this laboratory over here. Through another door here. And now we're in the heart of the spectroscopy facility itself. So what we're looking at are two very high-resolution spectrometers, One is used for measuring solid phase materials, aerosols, dust, and the other one, much higher resolution spectrometer. It's about half a tonne's worth of equipment. That's used to measure gases. We look at pure concentrations of materials such as methane, carbon dioxide, water vapour, and then we can look at how the light interacts with those materials, um, those gases, to actually change the light as it passes through. The spectrometers that you see here are even more complicated than how the instruments in space work. So the instruments in space looks at specific wavelengths of light. So it's essentially just a detector with a filter on the front of it. And it just measures a certain band of, of light. These spectrometers can break down those bands even further. So essentially they can look at different wavelengths across the spectrum. So the wavelengths that the radiometer will be looking at 
both the radiometer in space and the radiometer, the sister, they will be looking at very specific wavelengths. While these instruments are able to measure different components, not only temperature, but also how that radiation is affected by the gases and the materials it interacts with. And the spectrometer is sort of like, I always think of it as like the workhorse for space science and astronomy. It's used on virtually every single space mission you can get, and it also has its importance for ground-based experiments as well, particularly with environmental science. Yeah, that's right. The spectrometer, the ones that we look at in the infrared, they work also in the UV and in the visible. And they really kind of underpin a lot of the knowledge that we have about the world around us. It allows us to see in depth where our eyes can't view, essentially. They allow us to uh, probe the interaction between radiation and the gases that you can't see with your eyes. Because these instruments work in the infrared, they get to understand the impact of how light absorbs thermal radiation and then how it emits thermal radiation. So essentially looking at the climate change effect, the climate greenhouse gases, and how that thermal radiation is actually stored and then emitted in different wavelengths. Dr Hugh Mortimer from Ralph Space, thank you very much. In England alone, there are 450,000 kilometres of managed hedgerows. These hedgerows, many of which are made of hawthorn, are often called corridors for wildlife, be it beetles, birds, butterflies or dormice. Most farmers trim their hedges every year. But new research about how to manage hedgerows most effectively has discovered that less frequent trimming of hedgerows is better for wildlife. The study, part of ongoing research by DEFRA and Natural England, involved Dr Joe Staley from the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology and independent hedgerow consultant Nigel Adams. I met up with Joe and Nigel at one of the sites by a bare hedgerow on the Waddeston Estate in Buckinghamshire. Joe began by explaining how often most farmers currently trim their hedgerows. Farmers who are part of the stewardship schemes, the agri-environment schemes, are asked to cut their hedgerows either every two years or every three years, depending on which particular options that they've signed up for. And how often are you recommending that they should cut their hedges? The research that's just been published shows that if farmers cut their hedgerows every three years, that can have a substantial benefit for wildlife. It results in more berries being produced for overwintering birds and small mammals to feed on, and also in more flowers being produced in the spring for pollinating insects. How significant an increase in provision for the wildlife was there? Well, we were comparing cutting every two years or every three years with cutting every year, which is a sort of standard practice for farmers who aren't in these agri-environment schemes. And we found that particularly the cutting every three year has a huge benefit. So we're finding three and a half times as many berries as on the, the plots that were cut every year. And we're finding twice as many flowers as on the hedges that were cut every year. The plots that were cut every two years had a, a sort of intermediate benefit, but there we were finding that the timing of cutting was absolutely critical. So in order for there to be an advantage to cutting every two years in terms of increasing berry abundance, these hedges really have to be cut in late winter rather than in the autumn. So those hedges are there during the winter at, at the critical time when the wildlife needs them. But the key thing about this is that we're providing that evidence that wasn't there before. Um, so that means that if policy decisions are going to be made, they can be evidence-based. And what sort of knock-on effect then would this have on wildlife that use hawthorn hedges? We're hoping by increasing resource provision that this will provide more 
berries for overwintering birds and small mammals that really depend on this for survival. And we know that with a lot of our farmland bird species, the thing that defines their population sizes is actually overwinter survival rather than breeding success. So having these resources there in the winter are really absolutely key. I've just spotted a couple of little overwintering ladybirds here that are hiding in a, in a crevice in the hedge. Oh. So that shows how even some of the more common species do rely on, on the shelter of, of hedgerows um, during winter. Go through to the unmanaged bit. Oh, yes, they're, um, are they slow berries? That's right. So these are blackthorn berries. Um, we're standing next to a bit of the hedge here that hasn't been trimmed. So this is a bit that will be cut next year as part of our three-year rotation. And there's a nice patch of, of slows here, which will still providing food for birds and for small mammals that want to come along, especially on a, on a really frosty day like today. They may not be able to get into the ground to, to search for worms and things, so that's when these berries become really important. Nigel Adams, you're a, a hedgerow consultant. You were involved in selecting some of the, the sites that are, are being used to extend the project. For you, is this a sort of vindication of what people, and there are a great number, who appreciate the benefits that a hedgerow can bring but through better management can actually improve it? Most certainly. I mean if we start at the point that hedgerows are are one of the most important and understated habitats in the whole of the country really and yet if we cut them every single year at the same height we are liable to destroy the potential that they have. So this research as Joe has said is looking at two year and three year cutting not only uh, for the for the overwintering fruit berries but even the blossom in the in the spring is very important for invertebrates populations as well so it's, it's crucial and we only have to have a look at hedges which haven't been trimmed for years and the vast amount of berries that are on them and the flocks of red wings and field fairs that come down on them in the winter to see that something is going on and so we're just trying to encourage farmers not to trim every year but so much money is being spent on on this policy of, of giving farmers help towards that that we need to get that right and we need to look at whether perhaps if we're trimming every two years but we trim in september immediately after the harvest of that second year when the ground's dry and farmers want to get in they've got an opportunity to get on the field get it trimmed and that's it is that money well spent because of course they're taking off that fruit potential for the overwintering birds right there so we've got to know whether that is working or do we need to go into the three-year trimming and we need to look at autumn cutting against late winter cutting those sort of things are very important joe describe what sort of a hedge we're beside here at the moment on the estate we're standing next to a, a mixed species hedge it's a beautiful frosty morning and this is a fairly young hedge that was planted at some point in the 1990s, probably under the countryside stewardship scheme. And when you say a mixed species hedge, what species are here? I can see sort of little catkins here. I'm not sure whether that's attached to the hedge or not. Yeah, so we've got some hazel in this hedge. We've got quite a lot of hawthorn, some blackthorn. And we've got some other um, species which are maybe less common in, in some of the hedges. Um, so we've got spindle, dogwood. Looking at Nigel there. Has <laughs> she got it all right there, Nigel? Yes, it's a typical mixed species hedge. There's a bit of maple as well. You know, the, the trend these days is to plant mixed species hedge because they, they provide so much more diversity and, and, and habitat, really. Joe, is this part of extending the research as well? Because the, the five-year research was done purely on hawthorn hedges. So you, I assume you're hoping for the same sort of results. That's right. Well, the, the, as you say, the five-year research was done just on hawthorn, which 
which is the dominant hedgerow species. So it was important that we looked at that initially. And we're now looking at, at a range of different hedgerow types. So we've, here we've got the fairly young hedge that was planted under countryside stewardship. We've got a site in Devon, which is a typical mixed species uh, hedge on a bank there, and that's, that's a fairly old hedge. We're also looking at a dominantly blackthorn hedge and two other um, mainly hawthorn hedges. So we're kind of trying to extend it to a wide range of hedgerows and also different geographical sites across England. Nigel, when an organisation like Hedgelink receives effectively backing through scientific research that a certain way of management is beneficial for, for wildlife, does this make it easier for you to advise people in terms of how to manage their hedgerows? Or do you find that um, people don't want to know? It's, it's sort of, well, it's their hedges, they trim it, job done. I think it's a delicate balance. You certainly do need the scientific uh, backing and the facts uh, about what you're doing to say, well, this works, this doesn't work. But also pure science can sometimes turn landowners off, dare I say, in the sense that they want a practical uh, a way of doing things and, and practical outcomes. So you have to tie the two things together from very practical advice, but backed by good science, I think, really. Nigel Adams and Joe Staley on the benefits of cutting hedgerows every three years instead of one or two. Incidentally, the extended research project is also examining the effects of incremental hedge cutting too, by just 10 centimetres each year. I'm in the laser spectroscopy lab of RAL Space now with Dr Rebecca Rose and Dr Damien Weidman because they've both developed a prototype instrument for detecting atmospheric gases. And Damien, I'm going to begin by asking you what this instrument is called, primarily because I want you to say it and not me. (laughs) It's a laser heterodyne radiometer. And what does a laser heterodyne radiometer actually do? Basically, uh, all molecules in the atmosphere have a specific uh, signature, uh, what we call spectral signature. And by looking at this, we can actually identify and measure them remotely. So this instrument is actually decomposing the light coming from the atmosphere and finding out where are the specific signature corresponding to uh, atmospheric molecules. And which gases, which molecules in particular are you interested in looking at, Rebecca? We're interested in lots of different gases. So the instrument we just tested was detecting ozone, nitrous oxide, methane, water and uh, CFC. Are there associated colours with each molecule? Because, you you know, when you hear about auroras and green associated with oxygen. Yes, they are, but not for human eyes. We are operating in the uh, middle infrared so this is uh, radiation that human eyes can't see, so everything is invisible. What makes your instrument different to the ones that are around and already measure these gases? So our instrument can be made to be very small, lightweight and compact. It's also very high resolution, which means we look at very specific target gases. A lot of these gases have impacts for global warming or health issues. If you've got an instrument then like this that's smaller than than normal Damien, then that makes it ideal for deployment in satellites. What sort of missions in particular are you you hoping to get this instrument on? Uh, Missions um, which would be similar to some which have already happened in the past with some larger instruments. I mean, one of them is, for example, MIPAS. It's a a really bulky and big instrument, something like 400 kilos, and we would like to demonstrate that our instrument can do similar work but for a few kilos or even less than a kilos. So um, missions which would look at the global coverage of 
for example, methane or ozone or the sort of uh, atmospheric gases which are relevant for climate change and uh, studying the climate system. That's the sort of thing we we would aim to do with a a space-based instrument. It has been tested, hasn't it, Rebecca? How did it go? It went well. We were able to detect five molecules, water, methane, nitrous oxide, ozone and CFC. It did exactly what you wanted it to do? Yeah, and we, from the uh, spectra we recorded, we were able to obtain information not just about how much of the gas is in the atmosphere, but also where in the atmosphere it is, so the altitude at which it's concentrated. So that's a pretty good result then, Damien. So what next? We are currently working in uh, the technology to miniaturize the instrument even further, which would make it about uh, 10 by 10 centimeter, and working on also uh, miniaturizing the electronics to make a very small instrument uh, ready for uh, deployment. There are uh, a couple of uh, satellites that we can use to demonstrate technology in space, and if we have a small and light payload, we would be able to have a first uh, demonstration in orbit uh, within a couple of years. Well, good luck with it, Dr. Rebecca Rose and Damien Weidman from RAL Space. Thank you both very much indeed. Do remember to check out our Facebook page and you can follow us on Twitter. This has been the Planet Earth podcast for the Natural Environment Research Council. I'm Sue Nelson. Thanks for listening.